Welcome back to Hemoncomania. Thank you for joining our clinical series. In this series, we ask our experts guests learner-oriented questions to better understand hemong topics from their perspectives. Today's topic is multiple myeloma, and I'm truly honored to introduce you to our distinguished guest, expert myeloma specialist, Dr. Noah Biran. Dr. Biran received her medical degree from George Washington University in 2008. She completed her internal medicine residency in 2011 and her hematology oncology fellowships at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in 2014. She is now an associate professor at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine and has been working at John Turner Cancer Center in the Division of Multiple Myeloma. She is a principal investigator of several clinical studies as well as the author of multiple publications. I personally had the pleasure of working with her in both inpatient and outpatient settings, and I can confidently say that I have learned so much from her, and she also inspired me to be a better and a kinder physician. Dr. Brown, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very, very much, Ahmed. This is a pleasure to uh, work on this with you and to help uh, educate some of our colleagues on multiple myeloma and its rapidly changing environment. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Biran. Multiple myeloma is a huge topic, but I hope our questions can cover most of it. Let's start with the basics. Um, if you have a two minutes of introductory speech at the conference, uh, how would you describe multiple myeloma to your audience, presumably from uh, people from different scientific backgrounds? Multiple myeloma today is a very heterogeneous disease, and we're lucky in that the treatment landscape and prognosis for our patients is rapidly evolving. And I tell my patients and uh, my colleagues as well that um, patients today who are diagnosed with multiple myeloma can expect uh, a life expectancy measured in decades. Uh, that holds true for the majority of our patients. Uh, there is a small subset of patients, in particularly the high-risk subset, and they make about a quarter of patients diagnosed with multiple myeloma who are less fortunate, and those patients mm -hmm. still have very uh, short life expectancies, uh, mm -hmm. certainly not measured in decades, but even those patients were seeing uh, rapid improvements in their outcomes. And so it is a chronic disease. It is not a curable disease. Mm -hmm. So we have a whole uh, lot of room to go. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I always say uh, there's a lot of optimism and we can uh, well manage side effects and mm -hmm. give them a, a good quality of life and a long life. Excellent. So uh, it feels like uh, it's a field of medicine that has so many answers and so many research and helping and progressing to uh, help patients with multiple myeloma and improving the survival. Um, so uh, what is the pathogenesis of multiple myeloma uh, or in general plasma cell dyscrasias? Mm -hmm. So multiple myeloma are, is a malignancy of the plasma cells. Plasma uh -huh. cells are a type of B cell. They arise from the bone marrow, mm -hmm. and their function in a healthy person is to produce antibodies. Mm -hmm. And when the plasma cell becomes malignant, and we don't know why it does, it, there are specific risk factors associated with risk for multiple myeloma. Agent Orange is a well-known risk factor. Uh, people who were present in 9-11, so jet fuel, mm -hmm. Uh, chemicals used to clean floors um, or uh, 
um, you know, dies and things are associated with increased risk. Mm -hmm. There's a small familial risk, but in general, most patients, we have no idea why they've developed this mm -hmm. disease. But the neoplastic plasma cell produces too many antibodies. Mm -hmm. And the overproduction of antibodies, mm -hmm. which is going to be a clonal antibody, mm -hmm. so for example, um, the antibody is made of a heavy chain and a light chain. The heavy chain, uh, for the purpose of this discussion, is going to be IgG, A, or M. Mm -hmm. The light chain is going to be kappa or lambda. Mm -hmm. So you'll see an overproduction of either a heavy and a light chain. So IgG kappa is the mm -hmm. most common subtype. Or mm -hmm. you may just see a light chain, a free mm -hmm. kappa. Mm -hmm. And those light chains produce what we know as the crab symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I always say, not just crab, crabby, with mm -hmm. an I at the end. C, hypercalcemia, R, mm -hmm. renal, mm -hmm. insufficiency, mm -hmm. A, anemia, mm -hmm. B stands for bony disease, and mm -hmm. I stands for infections. Mm -hmm. And the infections occur because of overproduction of dysfunctional mm -hmm. antibody mm -hmm. and suppression of healthy mm -hmm. or uh, what we call the uninvolved immunoglobulins become suppressed. Mm -hmm. And so patients have impaired barrier, mucosal barriers, mm -hmm. and develop uh, commonly upper respiratory infection, mm -hmm. bronchitis, sinusoidal mm -hmm. uh, infections, mm -hmm. um, frequent colds, and that may be the only manifesting symptom. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really the pathogenesis behind the disease. Now, the bony aspect of the disease mm -hmm. occurs because of an imbalance in production of osteoblasts, mm -hmm. which build bone, and mm -hmm. osteoclasts, which cause destruction of bone. So you mm -hmm. have an overproduction of osteoclasts, mm -hmm. an underproduction of osteoblasts. As a result, mm -hmm. you develop what's called lytic lesions. Mm -hmm. Lytic lesions are very different from what you would see in a prostate cancer or a lung cancer, mm -hmm. um, which on an x-ray, a lytic lesion is a black hole. It's mm -hmm. a hole in the bone, and it's a weakening of the bone. Mm -hmm. And the, the bones almost look like Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. They're full of holes. It commonly can occur in the large bones of the body, like mm -hmm. the vertebrae. And that's why we see compression fractures, because mm -hmm. the vertebrae become weak, collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, the pelvic bones, the shoulder mm -hmm. bones, the clavicles, these are common bones where, mm -hmm. we, where multiple myeloma causes destruction. Mm -hmm. It's very rare to see finger or toe involvement or mm -hmm. a foot or an ankle. So it's like more like an axial uh, involvement. Exactly to my understanding. right. It's an axial involvement. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I I know that you mentioned the CRAB criteria, uh, right. but we also know that this new international myeloma working group diagnostic criteria. So what is different than the old CRAB criteria? Sure. So it used to be the CRAB that you need an end organ symptom. So it so to make the diagnosis of myeloma, you need two things. You need to have a clonal process, so you have to have a M spike, monoclonal protein, mm -hmm. with a particular clone, so IgG lambda, and then mm -hmm. a bone marrow conformation mm -hmm. of the plasma cell or the neoplastic cell, mm -hmm. plus an end organ symptom, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have an end organ symptom, you just have the cell mm -hmm. and the protein, that may be a precursor condition, for example, MGUS mm -hmm. or smoldering myeloma. And it, mm -hmm. doesn't ha it doesn't matter if they have kidney dysfunction. So mm -hmm. if you have a patient with type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. who has an abnormal creatinine, 
but they also have a myeloma protein in their blood that doesn't necessarily meet criteria. It has to be related. Mm -hmm. So the renal dysfunction has to be a plasma cell related renal dysfunction, mm -hmm. which is a whole host of different disorders. That's a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm. For example, you can have light chain deposition disease. Mm -hmm. You can have cast nephropathy. Mm -hmm. You can have renal dysfunction from hypercalcemia related mm -hmm. to the myeloma. You can have amyloidosis, which mm -hmm. you already heard about last mm -hmm. time from myeloma. But um, in general, you need to have an end organ symptom related to the plasma cell clone. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have both of those conditions, the clone and an end organ symptom, that is CRAB criteria. That meets criteria for multiple myeloma. However, we have now identified a whole host of patients who meet what's called slim CRAB, mm -hmm. which is you have uh, enough burden of disease mm -hmm. that your risk of progressing to a symptom is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And in those patients, we don't just wait. We mm -hmm. often treat them in order to prevent mm -hmm. an end organ symptom because you don't mm -hmm. want to wait until your patient is, God forbid, on dialysis or has a lytic lesion or a fracture or mm -hmm. something of that sort. And you don't have to necessarily decide right away. You can watch them month mm -hmm. by month and see if their prior proteins are increasing mm -hmm. and then treat. But there is a new criteria now called slim crab, mm -hmm. which is a, a certain a kappa over lambda ratio of 100 or greater, mm -hmm. um, a marrow involvement of 60% or greater, mm -hmm. two marrow occupying lesions on MRI. Mm -hmm. um, those criteria meet the mm -hmm. specifics for slim crab. Mm -hmm. and, it, and also, as far as I remember, like these are also... Um, classified as like a, um, um, I believe like a disease um, uh, related uh, like myeloma defining events. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Those slim crab criteria, even though they are not mm -hmm. specific end organ symptom by the traditional MWG are now mm -hmm. considered myeloma defining events. Mm -hmm. And you can justify treating mm -hmm. patients mm -hmm. if they meet these specific criteria. Mm -hmm. And these are the population probably that we used to be missing diagnosing and treating and then now we're able right. to like catch and then like treat. Yeah. These are the people that mm -hmm. were once considered small during myeloma mm -hmm. and these were monitored mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. Some of them never progressed, mm -hmm. but a lot of them, their risk of progression was extremely mm -hmm. high or did. And so mm -hmm. now you can certainly justify treating patients mm -hmm. who meet these criteria. So, uh, and also just to, uh, you, you mentioned uh, like MGAS or, or like the uh, monoclonal gammopathy of like a renal significant like MGRS mm -hmm. and also smoldering multiple myeloma are, are these like do you see them as a spectrum of the same disease or the same natural history that sharing like that evolves into like multiple myeloma yeah that's a very good question I think they are along the spectrum of the same disease and I think we know over time um, and the, the best example of this is colon cancer, mm -hmm. where you have a polyp that evolves with each mutation that mm -hmm. it acquires into all, you know, breaking through the gland and then mm -hmm. eventually turning into a tumor. And we've documented mm -hmm. very well mm -hmm. that with each mutation, these mm -hmm. 
tumors turn into more aggressive mm -hmm. tumors and behave differently. And, behave differently. and that's mm -hmm. what MGAS mm -hmm. is. It's a smoldering. It's a spectrum. So, mm -hmm. for example, one of the initial mutations mm -hmm. that we can identify by fish testing mm -hmm. is a T1114 mm -hmm. mutation, translocation of chromosome 11 and 14. Mm -hmm. Chromosome 14 is where the immunoglobulin heavy chain lives. Mm -hmm. And so one of the initial mutations that's often found in MGUS or even myeloma is TLN14. With time, these cancer cells can acquire new mutations and evolve into more aggressive behaving cells. So you have an MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, that has about a 1% risk of progression to myeloma in per year. Then you have a smoldering myeloma, mm -hmm. which is a bit more burden of disease. Mm -hmm. You have to have more than 10% bone marrow involvement mm -hmm. to meet criteria. And that has about a 10% risk of progression to myeloma per year. And it's a cumulative mm -hmm. risk. So mm -hmm. at year one, your risk is 10%. At year two, 20. At year three, 30%. Mm -hmm. By five years, it's a 50-50 chance mm -hmm. that that patient is going to progress to myeloma. Mm -hmm. And then you know, eventually these cells acquire more and more mutations and can mm -hmm. turn into an active myeloma. Mm -hmm. At the very end of that spectrum is what we call plasma cell leukemia. Mm -hmm. And that's when those cells that have started in the bone marrow acquire the ability to survive outside of the mm -hmm. bone marrow environment. And those are very poorly differentiated aggressive cells. Mm -hmm. And once you see a, a plasma cell in the blood, very, very bad, mm -hmm. very aggressive, mm -hmm. very short survival because those are mm -hmm. very poorly differentiated mm -hmm. aggressive cells that have learned survival outside of the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And that the same goes for what's called extramedullary myeloma, mm -hmm. which is if you see a, a plasma cytoma or a mm -hmm. tumor of plasma cells outside of the bone marrow or bones, mm -hmm. for example, the lining of the lungs mm -hmm. is a common place. Mm -hmm. We've seen liver involvement. Mm -hmm. We've seen CNS involvement. Mm -hmm. These are very aggressive, mm -hmm. usually end-stage disease. Mm -hmm. Often you can see it at the beginning, but that's mm -hmm. very uncommon. Very and that's really the mm -hmm. end of the spectrum. And are, are those the population of patients that are uh, kind of missed the opportunity to uh, diagnose earlier in the course, or are these just like a kind of like a phenotypically different disease entities? Yes. It can occur in both fashions, I so see. and it's mm -hmm. a very different story. So if this mm -hmm. is somebody who, let's say, some you know has had this for a decade mm -hmm. and the disease slowly turned, you know, mm -hmm. was packing the bone marrow and eventually spilled down into mm -hmm. the bloodstream, mm -hmm. that's a very different disease mm -hmm. than one that's initially behaving mm -hmm. in a fashion that's mm -hmm. extramedullary. Mm -hmm. And that there's a very big difference in mm -hmm. outcomes among those patients and a different mutational profile. Mm -hmm. So when you do fish testing, mm -hmm. you can sometimes kind of guess mm -hmm. as to which one it is mm -hmm. because you see with the aggressive form, you'll see a 17p mm -hmm. deletion. You'll mm -hmm. see a 1420 translocation, 1416 mm -hmm. translocation. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see much more. 1q21 gain mm -hmm. is a very aggressive behaving mm -hmm. type of disease and often those patients who present with extramedullary disease at the mm -hmm. onset have three of those bad mm -hmm. players and those mm -hmm. are what we call triple hit or mm -hmm. double hit myeloma and those mm -hmm. are really our most vulnerable patients mm -hmm. for whom treatment often doesn't work mm -hmm. no matter what we try we cannot induce a remission in those patients mm -hmm. um, 
So that's a different patient than one that's kind mm -hmm. of been chugging along. Yeah. Like I had a lady the other mm -hmm. day with a hemoglobin of, you know, seven, but that had been going on for a year, mm -hmm. you know, and her bone marrow certainly was packed, mm -hmm. but I think this was a very gradual process. Mm -hmm. The patient had COVID, you know, it was kind of everything attributed to COVID. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a very different disease. This is a more indolent disease mm -hmm. that's been slowly progressing over the course of a year. It's just that the burden increased. I see. Mm -hmm. And there, there's also like an entity called like non-secretory. Is it different than these other entities? Non-secretory myeloma accounts for about 10% of newly diagnosed cases. Mm -hmm. And th those are much more tricky to identify and to diagnose because mm -hmm. what you will see is you will not see an M-spike. Mm -hmm. You will not see a paraprotein. Mm -hmm. You will not see any any hint of myeloma in the, mm -hmm. in the peripheral blood or in the mm -hmm. protein burden. Mm -hmm. And these patients will almost just have focal marrow mm -hmm. occupying disease or bony disease or mm -hmm. maybe they'll just have a spine plasmacytoma or mm -hmm. uh, multiple lytic lesions mm -hmm. and um, these patients often go a very long time before mm -hmm. they're diagnosed because mm -hmm. nobody picks it up they don't have a high protein in their blood or mm -hmm. and they're pretty sick patients right they awesome. can be yeah mm -hmm. they can be very sick yeah okay so um i want to also change the subject a little bit yeah. uh, from um, a non-oncologist perspective, like when and when should a clinician suspect multiple myeloma and call you? So we get a lot of different mm -hmm. referrals um, mm -hmm. from, you know, neurologists, nephrologists, mm -hmm. primary care physicians, endocrinologists, mm -hmm. um, you know, other oncologists. So mm -hmm. most of the time, Patients will come from, you know, it, it varies. I would say the most common symptom mm -hmm. is fatigue. Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult to pinpoint. And not, I'm not saying everybody who has fatigue should be getting a check for an M-spike. But mm -hmm. um, anytime there is anemia, mm -hmm. that's really not um, anemia that isn't accounted for through mm -hmm. iron, mm -hmm. iron deficiency or you know, a common cause of anemia should be checked for a mm -hmm. serum protein electrophoresis, mm -hmm. um, a macrocytic anemia in particular. Mm -hmm. So if the MCV is high, mm -hmm. MDS and myeloma often are uh, important to rule out. Mm -hmm. um, anybody who has osteoporosis that's mm -hmm. unexplained. Mm -hmm. This is a large chunk of our referrals from endocrinologists because mm -hmm. you have a young person in their 50, 60, why are they osteoporotic? Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be a lytic lesion or a fracture. It could be just osteoporosis that's unexplained. Um, also, people who keep getting fractures, you know, thoracic compression fractures, they're, you know, why? Think about myeloma in these situations. Renal dysfunction with proteinuria, that is a very large uh, portion of why we get patients. And that's how a lot of myeloma is picked up through renal dysfunction. Hypercalcemia, that's unexplained. Mm -hmm. A serum total protein mm -hmm. on the routine chemistry that's elevated. Mm -hmm. A low albumin mm -hmm. is a sign of amyloidosis. Always, mm -hmm. you know, think about myeloma in these mm -hmm. scenarios. Absolutely. Um, so what do we have in our, like, diagnostic toolbox uh, um, when we suspect multiple myeloma? So I think the most important test is mm -hmm. the blood test. Okay, and the blood test should include 
a serum protein electrophoresis, mm -hmm. which is a gel mm -hmm. in which proteins travel from a negative to a positive charge. Mm -hmm. And what we see is that the smaller proteins can travel much more quickly, the mm -hmm. larger proteins travel much more slowly, and as mm -hmm. such you develop a very predictable curve. Mm -hmm. The biggest spike on that curve should be albumin unless mm -hmm. there's a monoclonal protein, in which mm -hmm. case you will get a monoclonal spike or an mm -hmm. M spike. Mm -hmm. And if you get any M spike, that's mm -hmm. almost always indicative of a plasma cell dyscrasia. It mm -hmm. has to be worked up. Mm -hmm. It's not always. We can see false M spikes in rheumatologic mm -hmm. disease, mm -hmm. infections, COVID, you know, vaccination. So mm -hmm. even normal people can have a small M spike and it can go away, but it certainly needs evaluation. Mm -hmm. So that's what the M spike is. That's mm -hmm. serum protein electrophoresis. Mm -hmm. Then we have serum immunofixation. Mm -hmm. Immunofixation is used to tell us what type of mm -hmm. monoclonal protein is, mm -hmm. is there. Is it an IgA lambda? Mm -hmm. Is it an IgM kappa? Is mm -hmm. it a free lambda? And that kind of tells you what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Quantitative immunoglobulins mm -hmm. is another one. That tells you your total IgG, IgA, mm -hmm. IgM, mm -hmm. and then your free serum free light chains, which mm -hmm. tells you the free lambda, the mm -hmm. free kappa, and the kappa lambda ratio. Mm -hmm. Those are your blood tests. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, you should always check a 24-hour urine. Mm -hmm. Not a random urine, but a 24-hour urine. Mm -hmm. And the three tests that should be checked in the 24-hour urine are total protein, mm -hmm. And that will tell you what the total protein is in the 24-hour period, urine M-spike, mm -hmm. and urine immunofixation, mm -hmm. which tells you what protein is in the urine mm -hmm. and what type, how much and what type. Mm -hmm. The urine-free light chain test I see checked very often and mm -hmm. is useless. Mm -hmm. There's no role for that test. So mm -hmm. never check urine light chains. Mm -hmm. Serum light chains, mm -hmm. serum light but chains. not urine. But also urine immunofluorescent uh, as well, like IFE. Urine IFE, yes. Mm -hmm. Urine M spike, yes. And a total mm -hmm. protein in the 24-hour urine. Okay, excellent. So what we are trying to do is like try to find that where the signal is specifically coming from and then use right. everything available yes. to kind of find that, right. uh, identify it. And then we're going to go after that, right. with, hopefully okay. with the biopsies or other like exactly. any other means of uh, um, imaging studies. Maybe. Yeah, so those are kind of your routine, you know, your screening, your mm -hmm. screening blood tests and urine tests. Mm -hmm. If all those are negative and the patient doesn't have any concerning symptoms for amyloid or for myeloma, then just, you know, usually it could just be monitored. Mm -hmm. But if though any of those tests are positive, then you start to look at imaging. Mm -hmm. um, then you may do an echocardiogram mm -hmm. because one in four patients can have uh, amyloid involvement mm -hmm. and you want to look for endomyocardial thickening. Mm -hmm. You want The imaging test for upfront mm -hmm. is a whole body low dose CT. Mm -hmm. Skeletal surveys are irrelevant now. Mm -hmm. um, they really pick up only a bone lesion if there's a 50% involvement of the bone. So you're missing a majority of bone lesions mm -hmm. with just the skeletal survey. Yeah. If it's a patient that meets the slim crab mm -hmm. or that I'm highly suspicious that has myeloma but mm -hmm. just can't prove it, I might do MRI mm -hmm. of the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And that's really the most sensitive test for mm -hmm. marrow occupying lesions or early mm -hmm. myeloma lesions. Mm -hmm. Um, another test that we often do uh, is a PET-CT, mm -hmm. and that tells you if there's any lytic bone involvement mm -hmm. or hypermetabolic active bone lesions. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, um, so 
after we get the signals and then we made a decision to uh, get a bone marrow biopsy and then what sort of information do we get through this biopsy? The bone marrow biopsy is a very useful test. Uh, number one, it tells you the diagnosis mm -hmm. because it tells you what percentage of the marrow is mm -hmm. occupied with plasma cells. Mm -hmm. And so a normal bone marrow should have about 1%. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's right. all you need. Mm -hmm. In a, um MGUS patient, you mm -hmm. often see less than 10%. Mm -hmm. In a smoldering myeloma patient, you may see 10 over 10%, mm -hmm. and it can be as high as 60%, 70%, but without symptoms. Now, mm -hmm. once you get into the 50, 60, 70% mm -hmm. range, you're already concerned that there's a very high burden of disease mm -hmm. and that myeloma is a much more likely scenario, mm -hmm. and you start looking for a reason to treat. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, so myeloma can be, for multiple myeloma, it doesn't matter how much. Mm -hmm. As long as you have an end organ symptom, if you have 4% mm -hmm. in the bone marrow, but you have a symptom that's mm -hmm. attributed to the myeloma, that meets criteria mm -hmm. for multiple myeloma. And so that's number one, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Number two, and you also want to think about if you're going to check amyloid in the bone marrow, mm -hmm. and that's a test called Congo-Red. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is you want to look at the prognosis. The mm -hmm. bone marrow tells you the prognosis of the patient. Mm -hmm. There's three tests that we do to help us with that. One mm -hmm. is a cytogenetic test, mm -hmm. which really just looks at the chromosomes in real mm -hmm. time. And if there's any major translocations mm -hmm. or um, you know, deletions or additions of a chromosome, and mm -hmm. what represents high risk in that regard is a complex karyotype, where the cytogenetic report wow. is three lines long. Mm -hmm. very adverse prognosis. Mm -hmm. The second test to look at prognosis is called the FISH test, mm -hmm. fluorescent in situ hybridization, where mm -hmm. um, they select the cells mm -hmm. from the aspiration. The bone marrow is done, I should have said this from the beginning, there's two pieces of the bone marrow, the aspiration, mm -hmm. which is the fluid component, and the biopsy, which mm -hmm. is the bone component. Mm -hmm. The aspiration of the marrow is sent for fish, the cells are selected by their mm -hmm. surface receptor called CD138 mm -hmm. for just the myeloma cells, and then they take probes mm -hmm. and look for specific uh, mm -hmm. translocations, deletions, additions. Mm -hmm. And there are certain mutations associated with high risk, as I said. Any translocation, and most translocations involving 14, mm -hmm. with the exception of T1114, the rest mm -hmm. are high risk. Mm -hmm. So 414. 1416, mm -hmm. 1420 mm -hmm. um, are all considered high risk. And then chromosome 1, mm -hmm. Q21 gain, or a 1P deletion. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also 1Q amplification, which mm -hmm. carries even worse adverse mm -hmm. risk. And then we have uh, any 13Q deletion that's associated with one of the high risk mm -hmm. is another hit to mm -hmm. the uh, double hit or triple hit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, trisomies are actually good to have. Mm -hmm. They're not. None of these are good, but mm -hmm. trisomy of the odd number chromosome three, mm -hmm. nine, eleven mm -hmm. are associated with favorable outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, that's called hyperdiploidy. Mm -hmm. Hypodiploidy, which is loss of a chromosome, is usually associated with adverse outcomes. Mm -hmm. So there's different stratification systems based mm -hmm. on the fish. 
The third risk stratification is mm-hmm. called next generation sequencing, mm-hmm. which is where you can uh, look at the DNA or the RNA of mm-hmm. the myeloma cell mm-hmm. and identify specific mutations that are associated with subtypes of the disease. Mm-hmm. And these have been associated through longitudinal studies mm-hmm. with adverse or favorable outcomes. Mm-hmm. So basically, we are getting like a lot of information characterizing like the cells like molecularly and also the that may kind of hint forward for the prognosis and maybe the treatment plans uh, so a lot of information uh, yeah, that we get from information yeah. so um you mentioned earlier like multiple myeloma is uh, not a, not curable um, right. I, I, right i wonder why is it, this cancer type is not we can't cure it or like are we limited Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So the myeloma uh, is felt to be part of the stem cells. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a theory that's not been proven, but through all of our work uh, in treating patients, that seems to be the consensus mm-hmm. among many that the reason you cannot cure it is because it has a life, it has ability mm-hmm. to live in the stem cells mm-hmm. of your bone marrow. So, mm-hmm. for example. One of the treatments and one of the best treatments today for myeloma is an autologous stem cell transplant mm-hmm. where you remove, once you induce remission, you mm-hmm. get rid of most of the myeloma, mm-hmm. you extract stem cells, mm-hmm. then you give a high dose of a chemotherapy called melphalan, which mm-hmm. is myeloablative, it ablates the bone marrow, mm-hmm. and then you reinfuse those stem cells. So mm-hmm. patients can go into remission for years, even mm-hmm. decades after mm-hmm. that, but eventually it comes back. Yeah. And you know that even we did an experiment um, at the University of Arkansas where they took the stem cell product, mm-hmm. they irradiated it mm-hmm. so that, oh, let's get rid of the myeloma before mm-hmm. we reinfuse the stem cells. Mm-hmm. And let's see what happens mm-hmm. because we're going to get rid of every little last bit. Mm-hmm. Still came back. Interesting. Interesting. And think about when you have a leukemic that you're taking care of. Mm-hmm. And they get the most aggressive chemotherapy, 7 plus 3. Mm-hmm. Probably changed now a little bit here and there, but mm-hmm. still the backbone is 7 plus 3. Yeah. And then you uh, check a day 14 bone marrow mm-hmm. on that patient. The marrow is empty mm-hmm. except for one little cell. Mm-hmm. Which one you think is there? Plasma cells. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Plasma cells. So they're stubborn and mm-hmm. they don't go away mm-hmm. and they're slow to mm-hmm. reproduce so it's much mm-hmm. more difficult to kill them mm-hmm. and um, they have an ability mm-hmm. to uh, survive mm-hmm. without the bone marrow microenvironment. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the cell itself, it's the environment. Interesting. It sounds like the, uh, I don't know uh, if, if it sounds funny, but sounds like a bad bug. And I, I also yeah, love personally bed bad, bug, bad yeah. bugs, it's like an ugly one. right, and they also like co-evolve with humans. Like, and there are like some uh, exploratory studies that they find like thirty thousand years old bad bugs in like caves, and then they were actually co-evolving with us. Maybe it's just like the one of the earliest cells evolving that's kind of still sticking around and exactly. <laughs> making like the disease uh, course worse. Exactly. Okay, so can we talk about treatments? Uh, I know that this is a dynamic field, but like what is the current new standard? Yeah, so in general, uh, the treatment and before you decide on treatment, you kind of have to identify which road you're going you're gonna to go on for your patient. Mm-hmm. Is the patient transplant eligible or not? 
And that's a decision that isn't a crystal clear decision. There are certain centers that have a specific cutoff mm-hmm. for age. Uh, you know, in Europe, for example, age 65 may be the cutoff for mm-hmm. transplant or no transplant. In our institution, we generally transplant up to age 80 unless mm-hmm. there's a comorbidity that's mm-hmm. um, severe or uh, sometimes even we do over 80 if there's a good reason. Mm-hmm. But in general, the, for transplant-eligible patients, you get induction chemotherapy, mm-hmm. which is either which is uh, generally three drugs. Mm-hmm. One of them is a dexamethasone. Mm-hmm. The other two are part of a proteasome inhibitor family mm-hmm. and an imid family. Mm-hmm. You do a certain number of cycles, generally three, maybe four. Mm -hmm. You harvest stem cells, Mm -hmm. um, and then you proceed with an autologous stem cell transplant. Mm -hmm. Uh, For for some high-risk individuals, we tend to do a tandem Mm -hmm. stem cell transplant, which is two, one transplant, and then three to six months later, Mm -hmm. a second. Mm -hmm. Often we give uh, consolidation or three or four months of Mm-hmm. treatment in that post-transplant period, and then we monitor them without mm-hmm. intervention, mm-hmm. just checking blood and urine every three to six months. Mm-hmm. And then in the relapse setting, it's a whole different uh, mm-hmm. treatment mm-hmm. Mil- you know, options, mm-hmm. many, many treatment options, depending on the patient, mm-hmm. depending on the aggressiveness of the disease, mm-hmm. depending on the type of relapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So. Um, so how do we diagnose relapse? Like um, to like, you have a patient as you mentioned, like uh, underwent stem cell and been following up, and then uh, I even like see sometimes like these patients like stopping following up, and then years later they come back often. Um, mm-hmm. um, like what determines this, and then how we pick uh, and find these patients? How you diagnose them? Yeah, the best case scenario mm-hmm. is you diagnose them by M spike because mm-hmm. you're checking every month, mm-hmm. every three months. So the best case scenario is they go, you know, and we check something mm-hmm. when they go into remission after transplant, we do mm-hmm. often a bone marrow to look for minimal residual disease. It's a test that can mm-hmm. detect very low level disease. Mm-hmm. M spike, let's say is zero. Zero, zero, zero. Oh, now it went to point one. Mm-hmm. That's so a bad what are you gonna, Yeah, so it's cooking, but nothing mm-hmm. else is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. the light chain ratio is normal, hemoglobin normal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe we better bring them back in two months instead of three. Okay, mm-hmm. now it's point three. Mm-hmm. Now what are we going to do? Should we treat? Is it mm-hmm. back? No. So there's stringent criteria for when mm-hmm. you start treatment, mm-hmm. and that happens to be a point five increase in M-spike from mm-hmm. the nadir. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, if things are not going well and it's going up quickly, you're not going to wait. Mm-hmm. If they have a symptom, you're not going to wait. It's not a bad idea to repeat bone imaging at time of relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, some patients are not that fortunate and they relapse very quickly and they mm-hmm. may end up in the hospital with renal failure. Mm-hmm. And that's a relapse. Or they may end up with a fractured femur mm-hmm. and you missed it. You know, And it's not because you weren't checking. It's because mm-hmm. uh, the disease biology just changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I also remember uh, when I was working with you, there are also a mo- molecular characterization of like early relapse. Uh, and as far as I remember, there is also like a, a different uh, response categories that we also choose. Uh, is it like now like a routine practice to molecularly identify such patients? 
Yes, and mm-hmm. that's where your initial bone marrow went, goes. Mm-hmm. Because those high-risk patients that you've identified from diagnosis, mm-hmm. even they will respond to treatment initially, mm-hmm. almost all of them. The response mm-hmm. rate to VRD, mm-hmm. bortezomib, lenalin, dex, mm-hmm. is 99%, mm-hmm. even in those high-risk patients. Mm-hmm. But they, what you will see is they'll relapse early. Mm-hmm. And the median progression-free survival after transplant for mm-hmm. a high-risk patient is about 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. I see. Without maintenance therapy. Mm -hmm. And maintenance can double it, but you're still getting a very Mm -hmm. short remission duration. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to do that upfront bone marrow. Mm -hmm. So how about these new uh, treatment entities like CAR T cells and also there's also bispecific drug uh, antibody conjugates. Uh, How are they like changing the field at this point? So we're very excited about these types of therapies. Mm -hmm. They work more... um, They work on helping the immune system to uh, destroy and control Mm -hmm. myeloma. So the CAR T-cell therapy is um, when you harvest peripheral blood Mm T-cells, they're genetically engineered Mm -hmm. to, there's two of them that are FDA approved, Abecma and Mm Carvicti. They're sent off and it takes about a month to genetically engineer Mm -hmm. these cells to express Mm -hmm. a protein called BCMA. Um, and then, uh, the T cells target BCMA. Mm-hmm. They're reinfused, mm-hmm. and then you, you know the patient submitted. Then they get some kind of uh, chemo to kind of remove the mm-hmm. regular T cells from the body, mm-hmm. infuse those CAR T cells, mm-hmm. and those T cells work by killing the the myeloma mm-hmm. and also recruiting other T cells in mm-hmm. the area to destroy myeloma. Mm-hmm. These this is very effective therapy. Responses mm-hmm. are in the ninety percent range. Mm-hmm. A little bit less, maybe, but mm-hmm. uh, doesn't work forever. The disease still relapses within mm-hmm. almost a year. I see. You know, that's the median. Mm-hmm. So it's very good for patients that have had multi, mm-hmm. you know, four or more prior lines of therapy. Mm-hmm. That's where it's approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bispecific T cell engagers or mm-hmm. bites work in a similar way, but it's an off-the-shelf mm-hmm. product where you can just prescribe it and give it mm-hmm. rather than extract T-cells, mm-hmm. wait for them to be modified and mm-hmm. produced. So it, it takes away that waiting period. Mm-hmm. Um, those are not yet FDA approved. We're mm-hmm. expecting the first one to be approved uh, mm-hmm. hopefully by September of mm-hmm. 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the issue, because they have uh, significant... Mm-hmm. Uh, issues with infections because mm-hmm. they impair T cells. They just mm-hmm. destroy the T cells. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing more uh, viral mediated mm-hmm. infections, old fashioned type of mm-hmm. uh, traditional infections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to be careful. I see. That sounds like a limitation to you. Uh, That's what I think, yeah. yeah. So, how do you see the future uh, in the sense of? Um, like the new uh, research in the pipeline, like what sort of treatments do you expect in the next uh, 10 years? I think, you know, we're lucky in myeloma that we have all of these options. We have the bites coming, we have new targets for Mm -hmm. CAR-T, we have um, new small molecule inhibitors, Mm -hmm. we have cell modulating Mm -hmm. agents. Mm -hmm. I think um, for our patients, what I would love to see is Mm -hmm. a better quality of life because Mm -hmm. as they're living longer and longer, You know, they're developing much more steroid-mediated toxicity. Mm-hmm. So if we can get, uh, you know, give them our best drugs, our biggest mm-hmm. 
most effective therapies up front, mm -hmm. attack the heterogeneity of the disease, mm -hmm. and then give them you know, the longest possible treatment-free period after mm -hmm. transplant. Maybe we have to do some immunotherapy modulation mm -hmm. after transplant mm -hmm. and give them kind of a break mm -hmm. as long as we can from mm -hmm. being on these therapies. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really mm -hmm. where the field is moving. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and doing more steroid sparing mm -hmm. regimens and mm -hmm. giving them better quality. I see. So thank you so much. Uh, so as a last question, uh, what would you advise to uh, your listeners or medical students, residents and fellows? Uh, what, what should they read about multiple myeloma and what do you recommend? I think what's uh, exciting about myeloma uh, and in general is mm -hmm. in, in oncology is the personalization of treatments and management of patients. It's mm -hmm. not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. It's going to, you know, every oncology field is going to be changing to more of a genetically directed mm -hmm. therapy and um, identifying mm -hmm. biomarkers of response. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where. Uh, it's going to be most exciting to mm -hmm. focus on. Yeah, like the like the precision medicine, and then following that trend uh, in multiple myeloma. So, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. It was You're a welcome. pleasure meeting you, yeah. and thank you for answering our questions. Um, and I really appreciate your time with us. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you.